I was having a good dream. Very good dream. King Agamemnon sent me. He I'll needs to I'll speak to your king in the morning. But my lord, it is morning. They're waiting for you. Are the stories about you true? They say your mother is an immortal goddess. They say you can't be killed. I wouldn't be bothering with the shield then, would I? The Thessalonian you're fighting. He's the biggest man I've ever seen. I wouldn't want to fight him. That's why no one will remember your name. Hi, everybody. So I wanted to take a moment to talk about Liberty Dad. I also happen to call him a lightweight, okay? And I have said that, so I would like to take that back. He's really not that much of a lightweight. It is not enough to talk about liberty. One must believe in it. It is not enough to believe in liberty. One must work at it. It is not enough to work at liberty. One must convince others otherwise. Reimagine. Here we are again, everyone, episode two of Liberty Dad. I have a few exciting developments to present this week. Liberty Dad has an official website and is on Facebook and Twitter. Hop on over to Facebook and find me at Liberty Dad Podcast. Then follow me on Twitter at DL underscore Liberty Dad. And if you somehow came across this episode somewhere other than my website, check out LibertyDad.com. There you'll find all the episodes posted until I have the official launch with podcast hosting services. Today's episode is The Story We Tell. When I presented my idea to some friends, a few brought up concerns about putting myself out there publicly. And since Liberty Dad is just getting going, I thought it was a great opportunity to lay out some foundational thoughts in the first few episodes. Acting deliberate is a theme you will find frequently, and this topic fits quite nicely. It is also timely as this is the first show of 2020. Let's dive right in. Last summer, I was on top of my roof cleaning branches and leaves. It's 25 feet at its highest point, with several much taller oak trees sprawling their branches over most of it. When I work on my roof, I don't just climb up and start working. I get out my climbing harness, hand rope, tie off, and belay myself. So I'm enjoying the fresh air and beautiful sunny day And I had this thought, should I be doing this? It had only been just a few months since my son Zach was born. As I imagine many parents can relate, anything that they did that was even slightly risky was called to their attention the moment they announced they were having a child. It happened to me. My primary transportation for the last several years has been a 300cc Kimco scooter. I've used it to get me everywhere in Jacksonville and even from Jacksonville to Orlando about a 150-mile trip one way. You probably already are guessing, the moment I announced I had a son on the way, a few people playfully pointed out it was time to migrate from two wheels to four, from scooter to minivan. And when I humorously pause, cock my head to the side, burrow my brow, and ask why, it's always the same response. Well, you're going to be a father now. People mean well. I'm just not sure that they've really spent time thinking about what they're saying 
when they point out all the things one should have to give up with a child on the way. And it isn't to say that you don't give up some things like sleep. I've given up way more sleep than I could have ever imagined. That's a story for another day, though. My frustration was with people telling me what I would inevitably give up as if whatever they had identified was automatically a given for everyone. I don't see it that way. Instead, I see many of the things people point out as giving in to fear and assuming all danger is of equal recklessness and should be avoided. I want to play a speech given by an eight-year-old girl less than a month after her father died. And then, right after, I'm going to play a clip of that same girl nine years later. Here it goes. My daddy was my hero. He was always there for me when I needed him. He listened to me and taught me so many things. But most of all, he was fun. I know that daddy had an important job. He was working to change the world so everyone would love wildlife like he did. He built a hospital to help animals and he bought lots of land to give animals a safe place to live. He took me and my brother and my mum with him all the time. We filmed together, caught crocodiles together, and loved being in the bush together. I don't want Daddy's passion to ever end. I want to help endangered wildlife just like he did. I have the best Daddy in the whole world, and I will miss him every day. When I see a crocodile, I will always think of him, and I know that Daddy made this zoo so everyone could come and learn to love all the animals. Daddy made this place his whole life. Now it's our turn to help Daddy. Thank you. And now the second clip. I think that I'm ready to kind of tell that story. I can remember being little and being like, you know, the one thing I want to do is be just like dad when I grow up. And I still feel like that. You probably recognize this as the daughter of Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter that many of us grew up watching. I realized that many people saw Steve's actions as reckless. Honestly, though, I'm not really so sure. Regardless, there's a more interesting lesson that we can draw from his life through his daughter's words. And that is, our actions, they tell a story. They tell a story to ourselves and to those around us. When Bindi says she still feels like that little girl who wanted to be just like dad when she grows up, she's telling us the story her dad told her. It's not a story where he sat her down and told her verbally. Rather, it's a story that she observed as she spent her first eight years with him. It's a similar story that many of us received as we watched him on television grabbing snakes, crocodiles, and other amazingly dangerous wildlife. The story was, this is an amazing creature, one you should look upon with awe, a creature that holds great mystery and is abundantly fascinating. If only we weren't so fearful. The story here wasn't that this is a deadly snake, if you see this, you better run. Though deep inside, we all knew that we should and would. We knew it was a bad idea to touch most every creature we saw in his hands. And despite what we knew, we watched in amazement, sometimes imagining our own selves being as daring or, if you will, frankly, crazy. Consider the show hook at the beginning of this episode, a scene from the 2004 film Troy starring Brad Pitt as Achilles. In that scene, 
a young boy is sent to fetch Achilles for a single-man battle between Achilles and Boagrius. His prior actions told a story to the young boy. As Achilles mounts his horse, the boy questions him about the stories he had heard. Those stories, even exaggerated ones, told a story of fearlessness, bravery, and strength. Contrary to Bindi, who wants to be just like her dad, then and now, the boy goes on to remark how the Thessalonian warrior is the biggest man he had ever seen and wouldn't want to fight him. Contrast these two stories for a moment. Both are the extreme version of my point. Most of us don't have a father who puts himself in danger's way daily. None of us will stand in awe next to a mythological warrior like Achilles. Of course, the story of Steve Irwin is true, while that of Achilles is fiction. Yet, both tell us the same thing. Our actions tell a story to ourselves and those around us. So far, we've discussed mostly the story told to others. Bindi grew up learning about the majesty and excitement of wildlife. The young boy in the movie grew up watching and hearing about the tales of Achilles. But what about the story we tell ourselves? And what does this have to do with liberty? Before we answer those questions, let's go with the story. Close your eyes for a moment. If you're driving or doing some other potentially hazardous activity, you may wish to just listen or stop what you're doing so you can participate. Close your eyes and allow your mind to wander. Imagine you're outside feeling the radiating warmth of the sun on a clear sunny day. It's like a blanket of warm air enveloping your entire body. As you move about, you feel the occasional puff of cool air, only to be returned to the embrace of a warm summer day. With friends, you are enjoying the contrast of cool water against the sharp, beating rays of the sun as you jump in and swim about. It's been a very long week for you and your friends. Junior high is tougher than you had imagined. The assignments are bigger, peers are different, and you're learning the harsh realities of what it means to crush on someone. One of your friends suggests a bold idea. Let's go jump off the high dive board, they say vivaciously. You turn and look. One, two, three high dive boards. You are tempted to ask if they mean the lowest one, but you know your friend means the highest one. It's 10 meters high, just over 32 feet from the board to the water. You immediately get a lump in your throat. Everyone else in the group is cheering at the idea, but you, you're conflicted. On one hand, it is a thrilling idea. On the other, it's an awful idea. No matter how many people you've watched jump or dive into the pool and then safely come up after plunging into the water, you cannot shake the anxiety and excitement that dances as partners inside your chest. Ultimately, you decide to go along. Scary as it is, if there was ever a moment you would face the intimidation of the diving board, it is now, with all your friends. One by one, each of you exit the pool and make your way to the diving board. Each step brings you closer, seems to increase the height of the board. Finally, you're standing with your friends, waiting in line to make your leap. In a split second, while you're watching others ahead climb up and jump off the board, you hear a dastardly set of words that causes your diving angst to skyrocket. Yeah, you go first. Me? What? what, what? 
your friends were voting while you weren't paying attention and selected you to be the first to jump. Your heart is pounding in your chest now. You anticipated your friends going before you and using their safe return to the surface of the water as your motivation to jump. Fine, I'll go first, you say proudly as you straighten up your back, firm your shoulders, and sharply turn your head toward your friends. You don a confident look on your face as they cheeringly smile and pat you on the back. No way you're going to let them think you were afraid, even though you actually were. Moments later, it's your turn. You stare through the steps, waiting for the person before you to jump and hit the water. Suddenly, you see an object and hear the splat of their body hitting the water right before the splash of water pouncing up from the pool and back down again. It's your turn now. Without hesitation, you reach out and grab the handrail with one hand, then the other. You place your first foot on the step and start making your way toward the board. Even though your foot is wet, you can feel the water resting on each step as you make your way closer and closer to the top. The spacing in the steps presses against the bottom of your feet as you extend each leg, pushing yourself up and up, finally at the top. Everything and everyone down below seems so small now. Walking toward the edge, there seems to be more of a breeze than there was down below. It's not cold, but it is noticeable. Thoughts are racing as you take each step toward the edge of the diving board. Should you dive? Just jump and go down feet first? No way! Diving is much too scary. What if you belly flop? Or worse, land on your back? Yikes! No way! And feet first? Well, that seems too boring. <sighs> a cannonball. That's the answer. It's easy and is sure to get a great splash. <sighs> it's now or never. With a bend of the knees and your arms pushed back, you spring forward and off the diving board. Time stops, but if only for a moment, as you pull your knees in, wrapping your arms around your legs, then grabbing your wrist with the opposite hand. Then it happens. The air becomes cool as your balled up body descends toward the water. Moments later, your feet hit the water as the water wraps itself around you almost simultaneously. The roar of the water rushes past you as your body goes deeper and deeper into the pool. You spread out your arms and legs and swim your way to the surface. The sounds of people playing and splashing about are muffled until your head breaches the surface and those sounds come back to life. As you wipe the water from your eyes, you look over to your friends and they are wild with excitement. You did it. You jumped off the high dive board and survived, and you did it first. The swim from the center of the deep end to the edge with the ladder is a triumphant one. Minutes later, your friends have all jumped off and are now back together in a group chatting about each one's bravery, jubilantly acknowledging the trepidation each one felt just before jumping. Just then, before you realize it, without any forethought, you exclaim, Let's do it again. Folks, I hope you enjoyed that story as much as I did writing it and reading it. It helps to illustrate the story we tell ourselves from start to end 
We're fearful, but rather excited. We allow the excitement to lead and conquer the fear in the end. But there isn't any one action that leads us to conquering that fear. First, we agree to jumping from the high dive board. Then we exit the pool. And then we keep taking steps toward the diving board. At one point, we put on a fake, which helps embolden us to not just jump, but be the first. We then take each step up the ladder, walk toward the edge of the diving board, and then finally make the leap. The incremental story we tell ourselves is, I can do this. It's also, well, I'm afraid, but not that afraid. Once the story concludes and we're standing with our friends, we tell ourselves the most important part of the story, that we can do it again. The first time was the scariest, the second time a little less scary, and so on. Being the second episode of a brand new podcast and the beginning of 2020, the story we tell is a great start to reimagining how we do politics. I chose Steve Irwin and Achilles on purpose. Extreme cases often help us put our own life events into perspective, and they provide us inspiration too. I also think that pairing a true story next to a work of fiction helps us better identify how these principles work. We see them at play in a story, and then in the real world, and I think that helps us to imagine how they might play out in our own life. If you recall in the intro, I said acting deliberate would be a constant theme, and it will definitely be one here and also in future episodes. We see that in both stories. Take The Crocodile Hunter. On one hand, it really came across on television that he was just being haphazard and rushing into the wild and grabbing creatures however he could. I mean, it really looked that way. But I firmly believe Steve Irwin acted deliberately and also added flair and sensationalism to get our attention. That is because our actions alone don't tell the story. Our words also contribute to that story. Consider a few quotes from Steve Irwin. I believe that education is all about being excited about something. Seeing passion and enthusiasm helps push an educational message. Okay, okay, sorry. That was terrible. I won't ever do that again. Let me repeat that again without my horrible Australian accent. I believe that education is all about being excited about something. Seeing passion and enthusiasm helps push an educational message. Here's another quote. When I talk to the camera mate, it's not like I'm talking to the camera. I'm talking to you because I want to whip you around and plunk you right there with me. The reality is that Steve Irwin was immensely passionate about wildlife and working to bring that same passion to others. And he felt one way to accomplish that was to get right in there and make viewers feel as if they were part of the action. Consider, many of us watch Steve Irwin with the same interest that many watch their favorite sports team. We watched and we learned. Likewise, Achilles was deliberate as well. He was a warrior, and when it came time to go to battle, he did, with speed and decisiveness. In the clip I played, the boy, unlike Bindi, is not motivated to be a warrior like his hero. Achilles sends him a very clear message, saying, that's why no one will remember your name. Man, that's brutal. We might argue whether that is the proper message, but consider that Achilles does not apologize and rides away. He is comfortable with the outcome of his actions. Okay, I think I'm extrapolating a lot here, 
let me just clarify the points I'm trying to make. One, our actions and our words tell a story. Two, that story is told to ourselves and to others. Three, our words can help identify if our actions are really as deliberate as we think they are. When we look at Steve Irwin's actions and compare them against his words, we can easily identify deliberate actions. His goal was to preserve wildlife and provide education to the masses. When we look at Achilles' actions and compare them against his words, we also see deliberate actions. Throughout the movie, we see that he lives for his own glory, as his words confirm multiple times. In both, they define what they want to achieve and their actions are deliberate in the pursuit of those goals. When I was on my roof clearing away debris, I decided, yes, I should be doing this. Not because I wanted to save money or that I thought I was better than someone I might hire. In the context of my son, Zach, I decided I should be doing this because I had considered the risk and took proper precautions to reduce them. It's why I haven't given up riding my scooter. I enjoy riding my scooter. Yes, it's dangerous, but it's a danger I accept and seek to minimize as best as I can. I decided the message I send to Zach is that life is about risk and evaluating each risk individually. Some risk you will accept and proceed forward. Others you will not. The totality of those risks add to the story your life tells. Now, let's bring liberty and 2020 into this. Many of you may be doing something for liberty or considering something. Maybe it's running for a local office. Maybe it's signing up on a committee for your local, state, or national party. Maybe you're hoping to start a podcast or a blog, start volunteering, or write your representatives. Whatever it is, old or new, I encourage you to examine the deliberate nature of your actions. Identify what you hope to achieve and spend time considering whether or not your actions really support that goal. Self-reflection is tough. I've been there and I'm still there. I'm constantly seeking out feedback. I was nervous as hell sending out my first episode. I had no idea what to expect. And the thing I worried about the most was the very thing others were concerned the least with, my voice. In fact, to my surprise, several people complimented my voice. But then there were the criticisms of things I either felt were good or were trivial and amounted to nitpicking. From the glowing praise to the scathing criticism, it's all a part of developing the story we tell. And the first step, just like the story of the diving board, is to say yes and start walking. And once we do the thing for the first time, we can use that as a baseline for improvement the next. One of my favorite personalities, Thomas Sowell, has something to say about this in a piece titled, Some Thoughts About Writing. I'll link the whole article in the show notes page, but I'd like to read two citations as I feel they are very relevant here. Here's the first one. From time to time, I get a letter from aspiring young writer asking about how to write or how to get published. My usual response is that the only way I know to become a good writer is to be a bad writer and keep on improving. However, even after you reach the point where you are writing well, and that can take many years, the battle is not over. There are still publishers to contend with, then there are editors, and worst of all, copy editors. And then a little further down, he continues. People who want to be complimentary sometimes tell me that I have a gift for writing. 
but it is hard for me to regard as a gift, something that I worked at for more than a decade, unsuccessfully, before finally breaking into print. Nor was this a case of unrecognized talent. It was a case of quickly recognized incompetence. When I read Soul's books and articles and watch his interviews and debates, it really does feel like he has a gift. It's hard to imagine a Thomas Sowell who was a poor writer or speaker. Until his death, it was hard to imagine a Steve Irwin that was unsuccessful at wrangling virtually every creature. And it was hard to imagine Achilles as a warrior who lost a battle. Well, okay, Achilles being the son of a god in the mythology kind of argues against that point. But in the end, what we see of their actions tells a story. The story is accumulation of deliberate actions, failure, and improvement. Challenge for you, if you're thinking about doing something for liberty, start. Literally, just start. You cannot improve if you are doing nothing. And when you do, and for those who already are doing something for liberty, seek out feedback from any source that will give it. It will be tough. For the feedback that isn't tough, simply set it aside as something that doesn't need improved upon right now. For the feedback that is, spend a lot of time digesting it. Sometimes you will need to act upon it. Others, you might simply nod, give thanks, and keep doing what you're doing. But remember one final thought. When your actions tell the story you wish told, and to the audience you wish it told, and they take what you wanted them to take, that's a solid sign your actions were as deliberate as you thought they were. And that wraps it up for this week. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to the next. Have a great week, and I'm out. Let me assume my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And Congress and presidency. Presidency?